Love the British monarchy? You've come to the right place. Welcome to the To Die For Daily podcast with Kinsey Schofield. Take it away, Kinsey. Michael Cole, I met you at Jubilee. It is such a pleasure to see you again. And um, I know this has been a busy week for you because actually what I wanted to say was how sweet you were. As I saw you this week talking about the 25th anniversary of Princess Diana's death, it, 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 I felt it in my core when you were saying that you missed all of the parties involved. Kinsey, you're right. Um, I knew Diana for 12 years. I knew Dodie for 12 years. I went around the world with the princess. Dodie was always in and out of my office when I was the director of public affairs at Harrods. And I knew Henri Paul. Uh, quite well. When I was in Paris on business, he would drive me around. Uh, He was quite uh, a humorous man. He used to wear this dreadful leather coat. And I said to him, I said, Henri, it does not make you look like Jean-Paul Belmondo. I used to say, (laughs) you know, you are not in a gangster film with Jean Gabin. You are the uh, deputy head of security at the Ritz. And um, that leather coat and the awful sort of Groucho Marx moustache he had at one time, they had gone by the time he drove them on that fateful, dreadful night, 31st of August, 1997. And he was killed instantly in the Alma Tunnel, uh, as was Dodie. Now, there may be other people, but I do believe that I'm, I'm the only person in the world who knew all three people who were killed that night. And... So whenever this anniversary comes around, um, I just think about them because they were prominent people or the the two principals were, but they were people. They were human beings. Uh, They had feelings. They had families. uh, They had hopes. They had expectations. So I'm always filled filled with tremendous sadness and a a sense of regret. And uh, I can't shake that. Um, What happened all those years ago, scarred everybody involved, the families, of course, more than anybody, but also the other people who were close to them. And when people, you know, like the these new bodyguards and things like that come out and, and make statements as bold as I could have saved, isn't that just another, I mean, it just feels like another punch. It's like, why even go there? Well, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, retrovision is uh, is 2020, isn't it? Um, and what good does it do? Quite simply, my feeling about it is this: that I accept the verdict of 11 ordinary Londoners in the jury during the inquests in 2007, eight, six months. The evidence took. And those jurors were almost directed by the coroner, Lord Thomas Scott Baker, to return a verdict of accidental death, but they didn't do it. They brought in the most serious verdict they could. The coroner said to them, you are not allowed to return a verdict of murder. So they brought in the next gravest verdict they could, which was of unlawful killing. Mm. And I 
not by negligence by the driver, Henri Paul, but also because of the pursuit of the following vehicles. Now, the jury did not limit it to the paparazzi because there were other vehicles in that tunnel that night. There was a large dark colored uh, sedan. Uh, and there was, of course, the white Fiat that, co that collided with the Mercedes driven by Henri Paul. Now that vehicle, the white Fiat, has never ever been found. And I, I'll tell you one thing, Kinsey, if you and I tried very hard to make a vehicle completely disappear, we couldn't do it. No. Even the mafia cannot do it. There is always a trace. But, 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 the French authorities have never found that driver and never found the driver of other vehicles that were witnessed by people, including a British solicitor called Gary Hunter, who has since died. So um, I, I believe that I accept that I accept that verdict of unlawful killing, but I do believe in time over the years, and you're young enough, maybe you'll see it, uh, other information will come out which will throw further light on what really happened that night because there are unanswered questions and anybody who says uh, there are not is dissembling and uh, misleading us. Wow, that's incredible. I, didn't, I did not expect that from you. Um... I did want to ask you about your time as a royal correspondent because you were in the mix when it was the, I'd say before Megxit, it was probably the most chaotic time. And I hate to use the word fun, but it seems like you were with James Whitaker, who was such a ham. He was so fun in the way he would get information from people. Uh, did you have fun as a royal correspondent? I must just tell you that when you mentioned James, who, of course, became quite a, a large man later in life. In fact, uh, Sarah Ferguson, the Duchess of York, called him the big fat red tomato because he had a he had a he had a red skiing suit when they used to go to Closters and Davos. <laughs> he did look like a big fat red tomato. But when we were boy reporters and I was about 20 and he was about the same age, we were on neighboring uh, local newspapers in West London. And I have to tell you, he was then as thin as a pencil. Oh, wow. And he would go around in a sort of Beatles suit. If you, you know, Your mother will have told you about that. Sort of like a collar, like a Chinese collar uh, around the, uh, or a uh, Indian collar around the jacket. And so I knew James, uh, his whole um, professional life. I knew his, his wife, Yvonne. And uh, so we were friends and, of course, rivals as well. But we always got on well because I respected him and I'm, I know that he respected me. I saw him not long before he died on a Thames River boat. There was a reception for a book launch. And I was sad that he, he died early on because um, he, he was a character. Um, of course, there, there was fun sometimes on the circuit. I mean, I went around the world with various members of the royal family. Uh, of course, the story is all important. I worked for the BBC. That was my first priority, getting the story first and fast and as accurately as possible. Uh, but there were moments that w when you could quite in enjoy things. And um, we, uh, we certainly tried to have a laugh whenever we could. 
I love that. Um, did you ever get to meet? Oh, no, you said you knew Princess Diana for 20, 12 years. So did you actually get to engage with her? Yes, of course. I mean, uh, from time to time, you know, she was a very charming person. We saw her uh, at, at her best and at her worst and at her happiest and her saddest. But uh, by the time, I mean, I knew Diana's stepmother, Rain Countess Spencer. Oh, I uh, love Rain. For yes. 49 years. Wow. Uh, and when she died, or before she died, and she knew she was very, very ill, yeah. she asked me to give the eulogy, the address at her a memorial service, which I was very proud and pleased to do. Yes, and of course, wow. I knew Diana's father, Earl Spencer, Johnny Spencer, uh, throughout uh, the last 15 years of his life. And when I was a reporter, I was with Diana going around the world. It was impossible not to know her oh. because that was, um, that was our job. Uh, I, I wouldn't ever claim... Uh, we were friends. She didn't ask me around to dinner. We we weren't on those sort of terms. But she did call me from time to time at my house in London and at my office. And uh, we used to have um, conversations. I remember once she came in to Harrods and um, she was wearing a very, very beautiful uh, brown Yves Saint Laurent trouser suit. And she looked stunning. And um, I, I was asked to show her out of the building. And she, she was amazing. I mean, she, she knew Harrods better than I did. I was working there, seven floors of Harrods. She knew the fastest way from one department to another by going up the stairs and around the corner and taking a lift. I mean, it's a big, big store, not as big as Macy's, but it's a big store. But she knew her way around far better than I did because she'd been going in there since she was a teenager. And um, so I took her out and on this particular day, uh, as we went towards the escalator and her sons were then um, about 14 and, and, and a little bit younger. Harry was, was obviously about 10 or something like that. And I said to her, I said, well, and they were growing up. And I said, well, you've re certainly bred some good looks into the British royal family. And she said, and height, and good looks, Michael, and good looks. And I said, she was very proud of that. And yeah. uh, I think if you look at those boys, uh, the Spencer genes from her side of the family are very obvious. Oh, and she was very proud of them. And yes. I think that's one of the reasons, Kinsey, that uh, she would be very upset to see the two brothers uh, apparently at loggerheads living uh, 6,000 miles apart and not communicating. And then when they do communicate, uh, it's not a happy story. All very sad because she always brought them up to be there for each other. And she hoped and she trusted that they would always have each other's backs, whatever happened throughout life. And I think if she were looking down now, she would be willing them somehow to mend fences, to make amends, uh, to become the brothers they were. Oh, that's beautiful. Is it true that you would let the boys sneak in to Herod's to meet with Santa Claus around Christmas time? <laughs> I, well, I, I, I tell you one thing they did used to do. Um, I don't think we had any privileged visits to Santa Claus's grotto, 
<laughs> but 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 they did love they did love um, electronic games, whatever they call them. I mean, this, yeah, video games. I, I'm yeah. not interested, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, Harrods always had the newest ones, the latest ones, and they would come. They didn't have them at Kensington Palace. It was only about two miles away, less than two miles away. And they would come to the fourth floor to the toy department, the, the floor for the children, and they would spend hours there playing on these things. And the other kids would be competing with them. Nobody cared that they were royal princes right. with HRH in front of their names. They did. They did love that, and um, uh, that was good. And, that is so um, cute. I can't imagine walking into a department store and seeing Prince Harry with a g game console in his hand. <laughs> <What a laughs> I must visual. just tell you, I uh, I was with a an, a an American journalist, and I think he was for the Wall Street Journal. And he, I was taking around the department. We happened to be in the book department. And he said to me, is it true that the royal family come to Harrods? So I said, well, do you see that man over there? So he said, yeah. I said, the man with the glasses in the architectural books department. So he said, yeah. I said, well, that's the queen's cousin <laughs> who is the Duke of Gloucester. And... Um, so I said it rather proved the point uh, that Her Majesty the Queen's uh, family uh, did come in. And at that time, Harrods had four royal warrants, which said that uh, they patronized the store. So, uh, of course, but the first, uh, the first um, royal warrant was given to Harrods, not by a member of the uh, British royal family, but by Queen Maud of, of Norway who was one of the descendants of, she was British, but she'd married into the Norwegian royal family. And she was a great person and she was very popular and she was always in England and she, she was a regular customer. And she, we, Harrods received her royal warrant. I think that was 1911, something like that. So yes, of course, but it, 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 Harrods catered to ordinary people the people who I used to say lived in the Tiara Triangle in the sort of three miles around the store. And when I was the director of public affairs from 1988 to 1998, 60% of the customers were local people. Of course, uh, we didn't say tourists, we said visitors, guests. We had overseas guests and guests from other parts of the country. They made up about 10% of the business and that was of course an important 10% but essentially still for many many people who lived in the tiara triangle it was um, it was their local shop um, in the 1930s I mean if you have time for an anecdote yeah people people used to communicate by cabbage grams and um, the cheapest thing you could buy in the store was a cabbage in the fruit and vegetable department for a shilling. One shilling was the 20th part of a pound. And you could have that cabbage delivered within an hour, within five miles of the store, and you could send a message. So you could send a message with a cabbage saying, would you like to come to the opera with me tonight? And you'd not only have that message delivered, but it was possible for the recipient to send back a message to the purchaser to say, yes, I'll meet you in the crush bar. So <laughs> that was a, obviously a different world. 
But oh, that was well, a cabbage, a Harrods cabbage brand was a, a real way of communicating. And that that is so cute and unique. I obviously I'd never heard that before. Um, and so I I would just love to know. You've said that Muhammad Al Fayed it was like a father figure to you. Um, I think that that says a lot because you've been so kind about him over the years, and uh, you've had. One thing I will say about you is your story has never changed over the last few years. My story doesn't change because it's uh, the it truth. Helps, <laughs> because it, it helps because it's the truth. I, I'm not sure what I, I said. Muhammad was a father figure to me. He was a good friend, and oh, okay. I was a good friend to him. I I, um, I suffer from loyalty. I, I'm loyal to people, and when I see somebody bereft to have their eldest son killed in such terrible circumstances. And their good friend, Princess Diana, who died a terrible, terrible death. Um, I feel for them, and I I support Mr. Alfide because he tried very, very hard over ten years to investigate this. Uh, he felt that the British inquiry and the French inquiry they may have been inquiries, but they weren't investigations. They set out to prove that it was an accident rather than investigating whether it had been. Murder, and interestingly, when the crash occurred in Paris, first of all, the French uh, medical authorities and uh, legal authorities, police authorities, classified the deaths as suspicious deaths, and they were reclassified as accidental deaths on the in insistence of the British Embassy. What? Now, what? If if um, if they had stayed as um, uh, under for inve investigation, then the, the bodies would have kept had to be kept in France. Uh, they couldn't have been released. They couldn't have been repatriated to Britain. So they were suspicious deaths until the British Embassy said that they wanted them reclassified as accidental deaths. And you know, in all of this business, and people throw around epithets about conspiracy theories and so on. Um, these aren't conspiracy theories. These, these are honest people uh, trying to find the truth. For it, I, we could talk from now until midnight, and I would do so if it brought back Dodie and Diana. Uh, of course, it won't, won't do that. But just, just in one particular instance, just one thing in this great story, um, Diana's body... Uh, was um, was 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 embalmed. It was embalmed twice, and uh, in France, you cannot embalm a body except with the express opinion and permission of the family. Or if there is no family member, then the local mayor of the nearest town. But Diana's body was embalmed on the say-so of the head of chancery at the British Embassy. And the head of chancery is a middle-ranking diplomat who deals with lost passports and people who are needing help to get home and that sort of thing. On his say-so, they embalmed her body, which, of course, rendered nugatory, null and void, any of the medical tests that were later done. And then when her body was brought back to Britain, again, it was embalmed. And why would they do that? Why did they do that? Well, when asked, uh, they said, well, they want the, 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 the shamelessly, 
the, the body of Diana was kept in a, in, in, a, in a room that was getting quite warm mm. and it had windows out onto a courtyard and there were people in other parts of the hospital who could look into the room. The, the blinds were not even down at the beginning. And it was said, oh, well, her body was starting to de decompose and they, they embalmed her uh, so that she would look nice for when Prince Charles arrived from Balmoral to escort her body and her coffin back to Britain. Well, that is pretty terrible because um, they were they were divorced at the time. Right. Uh, the instant they were divorced, her honorific title, Her Royal Highness, was stripped from her by Her Majesty the Queen. And, and yet they sent a, a Royal Air Force plane of the Queen's flight uh, with Prince Charles and Diana's sisters to Paris to repatriate the body. And then the Union, the Royal Standard was, was put on the coffin. Uh, but she was no longer a member of the Royal Family. She had been evicted from it. She had been expelled. Uh, she was a non-Royal person. Of course, when eventually after the funeral, which was a terrible, terrible thing to have to endure six days later, uh, when the coffin arrived back at her family home, Althorpe, uh, her brother, Earl Spencer, Charles Spencer, uh, removed the, the Union Jack uh, standard of, of Britain and put on the, the Spencer family flag on the coffin for her interment. It's all all too terribly painful. It's all too awful to remember. Um, I just think of what's been lost and, and, and how happy I, I know Dodie and Diana would have been because he, he really loved her. Uh, he, was, he was very much in love with her. I never had the temerity to ask the princess whether she was in love with Dodie. I wouldn't have done that. It wasn't my place. But the last time I, I, I saw her, she, she was as happy as she could ever possibly have been. And uh, I took her down to her car and she went in the car and she opened the window and she waved her hand out bye-bye. And, and she was she was happy. And, one of her her friends, in fact, it's a friend who who says that she wouldn't have married Dodie. She said that this friend says that it was just a summer romance, it was a fling, it, but it wasn't serious. But even that friend who poo-poos the thought that they might have got married and lived in California, which is what Dodie told me was their plan, even that friend said that when she rang Diana for the last time, she had the temerity to say to Diana. How is it going with Dodie? And Diana replied with the single word, which probably sums up euphoria. She replied, bliss. Oh, I love that. Bye-bye. Bliss. Bye-bye. <laughs> that is That's so how she sweet. Oh, well, I think that that is the perfect way to end this because I want to remember Diana in that happy place. You know, it's it's um, it's hard because we get wrapped up in, in just the harsh way that we lost them. I would ask you as I end the podcast, do you think she's lonely on that island? You know, do you think she wishes she was buried somewhere where people could visit her regularly? Kinsey, you're a very clever 
uh, asking very key questions, I would only say to you, go to Althorpe, see what you want to see. Uh, I think there was grave concern by Charles Spencer, her younger brother. They were very close. There was grave concern that too many people would come and that there would be, you know, rather like Rudolf Valentino when he was when he was buried in was it Woodlawn or one of the cemeteries in Los Angeles, people going there and trying to take something from the grave or something from the stone. I think they were very concerned about that. Uh, I thought it was an extraordinarily strange choice to use the island because that island, which the children knew quite well, they'd always used it for burying pets of the family who died, dogs and cats and so on, and they would row over and, and use that island for that purpose, which was entirely understandable and probably right. I, I don't know enough about it, but um, I was surprised. Uh, I don't know what the water table is there. I know that there's water all around because it's, a, it, it's an island in a lake or a large pond anyway. Um, I don't know. Uh, Diana's father, of course, is entombed in the local parish church, also. Um, I don't know uh, is the short answer yeah. to that. But I did think it was a strange choice. The lady in the lake, I think that was one of the headlines, very poignant, very moving. Um, but I don't know. And I think those are questions that uh, you ought to address to Charles Spencer Earl Spencer, um, he will know, uh, and he will be able to help you. And he's a uh, somebody who used to be in your business. He was a, a, a television correspondent for NBC at one time, and quite a good one. Mm -hmm. uh, Diana was quite proud of him, and he's written books. He's a very uh, clever man. He could have got a first-class degree at uh, at Oxford. He just missed that, but he he's an intellectual. He is the guardian in many ways of his sister's legacy. And uh, there is, uh, there are very appropriate, um, I think there's a museum at Althorpe. I've never been there, but there are displays of her dresses and other artifacts and uh, souvenirs of her wonderful life, which ended far, far, far too early at 36. I totally agree. Well, Michael Cole, it's a pleasure to talk to you and to, and to see your face again. Thank you so much for talking to the Today for Daily podcast. It's a pleasure speaking to you, Kinsey. I, I wish you well, and um, I hope your your viewers and your followers um, gain something, gain some understanding of what we all suffer on this anniversary. It doesn't seem like a quarter of a century ago to me. We still miss Diana. She was she was unique. Uh, I'll never forget her laughter. She laughed easily. She was she was a, a good person. And you know, Mrs. Alfayed, Haney Alfayed, Mohammed's wife, who is Finnish, uh, she said to me something. She said um, after the funeral of Diana at Westminster Abbey, we went back to their apartment in Park Lane. And we had a cup of tea, which is what English people tend to do after funerals. 
And Haney, who is a lovely person, she said to me, you know, Michael, on that holiday we had together, it was laughter morning, noon and night. She said, Diana was, was bending over with laughter. She was always in such good spirits. But she said, in Finland, we have a, we have an, a saying, after too much laughter, tears. After too much laughter, tears. And that is how we felt that day. Thank you for listening to the To Die For Daily Podcast with Kinsey Schofield. A transcript of this chat is available at todiefordaily.com. Please subscribe to hear more from your favorite royal commentators. Cheers.